Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Hi everyone, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome to our closing session for Africa Family Business Research Conference. Wow, it's been a really fun pack four days and um, we're really, really excited for this final session um, presenting research on African family businesses joined by the amazing Professor Dennis Jaffe. So welcome, Dennis. Great to have you. Um, So I'll hand over to you to make your presentation. Right. Let me um, open up my uh, screen. Hello. Hello, everybody. I'm in awe of uh, all of the um, sharing and uh, uh, material that has come out in this conference. I've gotten up um, uh, in the middle of the night and uh, listened to some, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to the recordings uh, at a more reasonable time um, uh, as time goes on. So I'm going to I'm going to talk about and and I think it's good ending the conference. I'm going to you know take you on a journey through some research that I've done over the past eight years now. Um, and uh, it, it began when I made a very good career move. As a, After 38 years as a professor, I retired. And uh, with that big hole in uh, my schedule and time to travel, um, what I, um, I did something that I'd wanted to do for many, many years, and that's to take a journey um, around the world and interview families, um, not average family businesses, but families that were exceptional. And um, I looked for exceptional families by looking for families that had gone past the third generation as both a family and a business. Um, I tried to go to as many different places as, as I could. Um, and the, the interviews that I, uh, uh, families that I met, 100 families that I interviewed um, come from 20 countries, including Africa. And, um, and, they, um, and they have been uh, together as a family enterprise for more than three generations. And they're mostly very large. So the average family that I interviewed um, is in the um, the region of a net worth of uh, $1 billion US. So they're, they're huge businesses. And what I wanted to do is uh, have them go back and uh, look at the roots, uh, how they began, how they succeeded, and how they have uh, transformed themselves over the generation. So I was looking um, to get out of um, a kind of a North American perspective and, and really see one question I had is, is well, there are things that have grown up in the U.S. and the U.S. exports a lot of uh, um, uh, things that they suggest to other families. But one of my questions was, are they relevant? Are the things that we've learned uh, in North America, do they relate to families? Are they, how are they similar? How are they different? And uh, what I was most amazed to find is that even across all of the different global cultures um, where families um, have grown, family enterprise has grown up, there were commonalities. I mean, that was a surprise to say, is there something that with 100 families families that um, they had in common. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. So given that this is a research conference, I wanted to 
to kind of make a few points about the, the research that I do. So I'm a, a sociologist and I'm a, um, a qualitative researcher, which means that I work by field work, interviews, um, and visits rather than uh, than than uh, uh, data and and surveys. Although I do use surveys, and um, and so uh, what what I what I looked at, um, and and this came up in the last presentation. My unit of study was the family, and so business came up, but business uh, was was not the independent variable. I was looking at families and business comes in and out and they reform and sometimes they sell the business but remain together as a family, become a family investment group. So I'm looking at the evolution of wealthy families and how they organize through business, financial and non-financial activity. I look, wanted to look at the, the most successful, uh, not the average family business. I think it's, it's fine to do surveys and find out what the average and what the norms are, but families are more or less looking for what are the most successful, the families that are not shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, the families that are thriving and continuing to add value over generation. And so I call these generative families. These are families that are successful. And the idea is the generative families, successful families can teach us things that we can apply to families that are in an earlier stage of development and are asking themselves, what can I do to be um, uh, successful in the future? What are some of the ideas and tools and practices that I that I can take up. The research that I had, um, there, there are surveys, for example, that says, well, 60% of families have a family council. And in one way, that tells you stuff. They have something where the family gets together, but it really doesn't say, well, what is a family council? How do they do it? There are so many different ways that the family gets together. What is it like? How did it form? What are the challenges? And so I, um, by asking, by interviewing people and by telling stories, what I'm able to do is say, well, it's not just that these families have a family council, but tell the stories of what some of the family councils are like and how they operate and how they overcome challenges. So um, I'm telling stories and sharing stories. I There are common themes, um, but it isn't um, like I'm saying, well, this is what family businesses do to be successful. So the, the, the fourth thing about the research that I do is that, that the research is is practical. I'm, I'm, I am uh, writing not just to other researchers, but to family and to family advisor. And the idea of research that I have um, is kind of, uh, we call it action research. It's research that helps develop practice and helps families do better and practitioners and advisors advise them better. So that that's my perspective on research. And uh, it's um, uh, in the book. That's why the book is so long, because it's full of stories and uh, it couldn't be condensed. So I'm going to take you on a journey through what I found fairly quickly and um, and then answer some questions and then you all can go on your way. So as I said, I wanted to learn from the best. And these are generative families because they don't just create one kind of uh, business and then coast on it for the rest of their uh, lives. They create wealth and value over generations. They're continually adding value, and, and sometimes it's financial value. But increasingly, these families are doing are it's non-financial value. And the families came from uh, 20, uh, 20 countries, every continent, uh, Africa. There uh, in the original research um, was one percent, and since then, uh, I've been really uh, trying to add um, non-U.S. families. So I've introduced 
interviewed two other uh, African families, um, and they're trying to make this a global uh, project. So I'm going to share seven insights that I learned from these families that are, um, some of them are uh, are kind of uh, non unexpected or come from a different, uh, different than conventional wisdom, and some of them support some of the conventional wisdom. So the, the first thing that I learned, the loudest thing I learned from the families is these um, families talked about two major events. The first major event, of course, is creating a, a business that was hugely profitable and successful. But then they talked about a second major event. And this sometimes didn't occur in the first generation, it occurred in the second or third generation, which is that the next generation made a decision to, um, when they looked at, we have great wealth, we have been very successful. Our, <clears throat> our goal is to create a great family. And that has a, they have to, def- every family defines that differently, but they, they began to invest their resources, their time and their energy in creating a great family. And, and the uh, amazing thing is that this seems to, um, in many ways, help them in their uh, commercial and their financial activities. Um, but the focus is on creating a family, not making more money. Family businesses, I've learned, are not like normal businesses. I think they're fundamentally different. And there are two things that these families said that made a difference and made them different from just um, a public company, per se. One is, is that the owners are, are not just, um, are not strangers to each other like they are in public companies. The owners have a personal relationship and they care about more than financial return. So the owners can get together and say, look, we could make more money doing this, but we want to invest long term and we we want to make the environment better and we want to be socially responsible to our employees during COVID. And so we're going to do, we're going to make some investments that are basically not for business purposes. Um, uh, so the non, the personal relationship leads these families to do things. And then the uh, second quality of these families is they have a long-term focus because by nature, a family business wants to pass it on to their children and to pass it on to their children means that you don't use it up. You may enjoy the wealth um, uh, and these families certainly do do, but you are always attuned to the fact of what are we creating for the future? And some families talk about 100-year visions, and they talk about seven-generation thinking, and they're really focused on on the future, and that leads them to make different kinds of decisions. They're more than a business. Um, family businesses are not businesses. They're, they're families. They're, they're interested and concerned about things other than financial return. They're interested in, in uh, building great people. They're always reinventing themselves. No family business in the third generation is doing what it did in the first generation. They're diversified. The um, uh, families, uh, half of the families sold their legacy family business, but they still continued as uh, in a family office and as, as partners in a diversified um, family portfolio. They uh, they didn't, they weren't owner managers. Um, and a lot of family businesses start, certainly start out as owner managed business, but by the third, fourth generation, their family may be saying, um, you know, we, we, we need to have kind of expertise to run our business non-family um, uh, executives and leaders and even a CEO. But they, the family is together as stewards and as investors and as owners. So what does it mean to create a great family? When I started asking them about the family, I got a funny kind of pushback where the family member said, well, gee, what do you mean uh, by family? 
I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, family. They said, well, I have two families. I, I mean, I have my nuclear family, my family that I live with, uh, my my spouse, my uh, children. And of course, I've learned in Africa that even that can get complicated. But uh, and then there's also the wider family, the extended family that, that is a family, but it's a different kind of family. And um, so the things that families do that are easy to do sometimes in, in, a, in a household um, are harder to do when the family has many, many members. They're in different branches. They're in different places. And so these, um, when I talk about the family in these, with these multi-generational families, I'm really talking about something that's more like a tribe or a cross-generational community of citizens. They're tied together by a legacy, but they, and they have a shared identity and they have kind of rituals and, and, and practices that they do as a family, but they're actually multiple household. And that's that's one of the challenges of the family is as it gets into uh, more and more households and more and more branches, um, it, it isn't a given that the, it isn't easy for these families to stay together. And that's why many families just decide to disperse and, and stop doing it. It's very hard to sustain the family over generations. When you look at these tribes of families, um, it's not just about financial return. They're concerned, what do we do with our wealth? What's our wealth for? What about our children? What's facing them? How do we help our children thrive? And uh, we know the children are going to be wealthy, but how can they become productive people? Who are we? How do we give back to our community? How are we seen by others? How do we, um, we, we, we understand that it's very, very privileged and very special for us to be wealthy? What do we do? What's our responsibility? And these are, um, these are not business questions. These are family questions and they're kind of tribal family questions. So these families are creating an agenda for what they do. And the agenda is not financial. The agenda has to do with different types of what we call non-financial capital. First is the legacy capital, which is the values that they have and how they express those values and um, promote those values is uh, one of the central things that these families talk about as, as what's important, what keeps them together, shared values, their legacy capital. Uh, relationship capital is the way that the family works together. Um, families can fight, can conflict, can be at war with each other. Um, but these successful families were able to build the positive parts of their relationship, their uh, trust in each other, their um, uh, a trust in each other's capability, their ability to collaborate, to make decisions, to communicate. These are relationship capital. And there's human capital. And human capital is basically the, um, the value that you create in your children and grandchildren, the skills they have, the knowledge they have, the relationships they have, their ability to do things. This is the human capital. And finally, they build social capital, which is their who they are in the community. They are a successful business. They don't want to be known as a as a, an exploitive business. They don't want to be known as a, as a horrible business. They want to be respected. And, and they're concerned about their community. They live in their community, but they're not wanting to just live behind gates. They're wanting to serve the community. And increasingly, um, all of us are concerned about the future of the planet and the environment. And that is a shared concern. So families are building an agenda. And in order to build an agenda, they have to organize themselves and create activities in each of these different areas. And these are non-business activities. Second thing that we learned um, uh, from these families is that they had to create a culture shift in the second or third generation from the wealth creator. And the uh, the wealth creators um, uh, were, were people that did not come from wealth and they built it from scratch.
scratch. But there's a certain identity and wealth creators identity is uh, in some ways similar all over the world. And a wealth creator in Africa, wealth creator in uh, um, in Asia, wealth creator in India, in uh, Europe. Um, they're all people that didn't come from wealth, that, that, that are very, very strong identity and strong sense of self. They're obsessed with the business. They are, um, they, 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 they make decisions. They take responsibility. They're, um, they, they get things done, but they're also secretive and, and they sometimes don't trust other people. They only trust themselves and they're certainly in control. And what we heard from these families is that those qualities of the patriarch were wonderful for creating a business, but they weren't so good for creating a um, long-term family relationships. And uh, so the challenge in in these families is to change the culture from the entrepreneurial one person in control patriarchal culture not sharing information avoiding conflict uh, very controlling not letting go not open to new ideas um, into a more collaborative culture and all these families talked about an event where they switched their culture from paternalism to a more collaborative and a more shared kind of culture so the, the challenge is that 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 the uh, paternalistic leader is very, very good at, at uh, making decisions for people. But when you have a family with three or four generations and different uh, families, different households, different people, if you're making, if one person is in charge and making all the decisions, the heirs um, become entitled. They become passive. They become rebellious. They get withdrawn. They, they, these are not positive consequences. And so the behavior of patriarchs in these families, um, the families reported that they had to change the culture of the family from paternalism to partnership. They had to become more transparent and share information. They had to work together. They didn't have one person deciding everything. They had to trust each other and, and, and trust that their, their uh, well-being, um, that people cared about each other's well-being. They had to become more professional. They had to have more people engaged. You can't just stand back and benefit from it. You have to take a role. Um, they had to have clear rules. Who? How do you work for the family business? Um, what are What are you accountable for? And they had to have multiple entities and multiple paths. So there's a culture change in a family business. And if that doesn't happen, um, maybe the family can go on for two, maybe three generations, but it, it tends to fragment or um, move away if they don't create this partnership culture. So the third insight is that these families had to create not governance as a single thing, but two kinds of governance. Um, one kind of governance is they had to create a professional business. They had to create a board. They had to have an owner's council. They had to have um, uh, different boards for different uh, entities. Um, and they had to have rules and, and agreements that the owners um, could agree on. But in addition to the business and ownership, these families had a need for a second kind of um, uh, um, uh, governance, which is family governance, where the family did things to, to support each other, to build their relationships, to get to know each other, to define their, their traditions and celebrate their legacy, to, um, uh, to kind of deal with differences and, uh, and, and bring, get people excited about the business to um, uh, have a social commitment and philanthropy. So these families tended to have two kinds of governance, not one, the professional business governance and the family governance. 
what's new and what's different in a family business that exists no other business is the idea of a family council. And the family council is a group not necessarily um, making, be able to make uh, all decisions, but it's a getting together of the family for the family to say, these are, this is the um, agenda that we have as a family. This is how we build connection. Most of the families get together uh, every uh, year or so, even if there's 100, 200 people. Some families have several hundred people and they come from all many countries in the world to get together. It's a big deal. They, they beat maybe every other year and they develop personal relationships and they talk about what's important and they talk about their difference and they affirm, uh, all of them talk about affirming their values and their identity. And um, the idea is to keep the family on a positive note, to keep family members aligned. Um, sometimes family members don't want to be part of the family enterprise. And so there's an exit policy, but uh, there has to be a family governance. And in order for there to be family governance, you have to have kind of a board of directors of the family. And that, in a nutshell, is what the family council is, is the board of directors for the family that brings the family together, uh, not to make business decisions, but to advise and to align interests and, and to talk about values. So we talk about governance. We don't talk about a lot of people see governance. That's an agreement. That's a family constitution. Um, and that's part of it. But when we look at governance, there are five elements that come up. And the first one is transparency. You can't have shared governance and you can't work together if you don't know what's there. So the families have to share information, not just financial, but but what they're doing, how they're making decisions, um, uh, create rules and policies um, So by sharing information. Then they may have shareholders agreements and they may have um, uh, different kinds of things um, that they do different kinds of uh, boards and entities, but they, those agreements can't exist. Who makes them? They have to be made by the family owners. So if you have agreements, you also have to have councils and boards and entities of the family getting together, which means the family has to organize and has to be engaged. Then you have to have roles and boundaries. You, you Just because you're a family owner or just because you marry into a family doesn't mean you can do what you want. So there have to be rules and roles and uh, boundaries where people know what they can do. What can the family council decide? Family council can't sell the business, but the family can say, you know, we we don't feel comfortable with this business or we'd like the business to change. So they can advise, but they have to understand the boundaries and roles. Um, and um, and the final element of the governance is, um, is accountability. They have to be, family members have to be um, uh, accountable for what they're doing. They have to be transparent about their results. They have to be, um, uh, uh, do what they do in, uh, in order to earn the trust of the family. So these are the five elements of governance. Fourth insight about these hundred year uh, families is that it, it's not a, um, there isn't like one time that you build governance. Okay, let's build governance. It's an evolving journey and the family is continually hitting challenges. Look, we've got, we have the COVID uh, challenge. We have some global environmental challenges. These are things that we didn't plan for. We also have family members growing up and, and having different skills and different interests. And, and they, so families talk about their development as a journey. And each stage of the journey, there are challenges, there are setbacks, there are great um, positive events, and there are things that they have to do as a family to respond to change. So families talk about a roadmap and a journey um, rather than just we built governance and, and we put it in place and then we were done. Um, uh, families talk about when the minute they create governance, they start to practice it and new challenges and new things come up, they have to deal with. So it's continually evolving. And this means that the family has to be resilient, 
It has to be entrepreneurial in order to develop. One of the things that we hear from uh, these families is they've all pretty much moved from a single business to a um, uh, what we call an enterprise portfolio, a number of different uh, entities that includes not just an operating business, sometimes several, um, can be you know even uh, many investments. Uh, there can be a family office, there can be real estate, family ranch, family homes that, that are shared, there can be a family foundation. There are all kinds of thing, uh, assets in the family by the second or third generation. And even if they have one powerful, large company, they often have other uh, investors in it. And the family has more assets than just um, single. So the family evolves. And there are four transformations that we see in these families. The first is over time with a successful business, the family uh, begins to create not just wealth for their own enjoyment, but they begin to take wealth out of the business from the profits and they have to invest it. And the choice is, do we do that together or do we do just divide it up? And most families do it together. So they begin to create additional wealth than just the business. Pruning has to do with the fact that, that a family is, you don't elect your family, you're born into it. And so you may grow up and say, you know, I love my family, but, but my interests are different. Um, I live in a different country. Um, I want to start my own business. So there's a process in these families of saying family members can leave the business. And um, uh, almost every one of the hundred families had a process by which if you didn't want to be part of it, you could leave. You could sell your shares. You can sell your interest and, and move on. You're still a family member. You're still a cousin, but you're not a business partner. And this was important. Then they diversified. And the family talked about with our values do we buy new businesses? What do we invest in? Um, what do we want to do with our money? Do we want to give it away? And so the diversification process inevitably um, leads the family to many different directions. And finally, the families had to do something to ground and reaffirm their values and identity. Um, they had to not just do this uh, on paper, but they had to get together and do it. They had to have a place for the family, um, a, a family office or a family home retreat center, a place, uh, a way of getting together. They had to ground and reaffirm their identity because each new generation had to learn what it means to be part of this family. Fifth insight, and I'm going to to speed up and uh, um, get, uh, I know you're all um, uh, uh, getting tired from all the presentations. The fifth is, is that, that these families were continually evolving and changing. And, and what, what they said and what they, what we know about families is families are not set up to be innovative and change that, that families are kind of like paternalistic organizations. The parents are in charge, kids follow directions, um, they're not continually changing. And yet these um, ent ent generative families are continually reinventing themselves. And what we found out is there were three kind of key entities um, or stakeholder groups that these families had. And these families were adept at working, uh, making all of these three, each of these, all these three entities working together. First entity is the elders, um, the, 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 the people uh, older generation. Often they have the ownership, they have the control, they make the decisions, and they begin to bring in trusted advisors, non-family executives, and people that are kind of, that are great professionals, but are kind of, uh, they're, they're not innovators. They're not brought in to tell the elders what to do. They're brought in to do what the elders want. And uh, often they, they have a lot of um, power and control delegated to them. Um, and, um, and this is, um, you know, what, what we think of sometimes as a family enterprise, the elders and the trusted advisors. 
But in the generative families, there's a third group. And this is the excitement uh, they had, which is the next generation. The next generation grows up and they're part of the family. They have a future. They, they, they may not be owners, but they know that just time will make them become owners. And, and over time, they will come into control. So the question is, when do they begin to exercise influence? And if the next generation um, are, um, are creative and have new ideas, when do these new ideas um, get listened to? And what if their new ideas are really important and the elders are, are missing um, uh, innovations because the next generation, they've been to business schools, they've traveled, they, they've learned, they've worked in other businesses, they have lots of ideas and, um, and the, these ideas may be what the business needs. So we talk about the uh, the generative alliance in these families where the older elder generations hold the legacy and the values and they bring on what we call craftsmen non-family executives to build business discipline and professionalism um but they also value um their children the new generations that have new ideas that are creative and um the challenge and uh the opportunity of a um uh successful generative business is to make these three groups listen to each other, influence each other, learn from each other so that the family, the elders don't isolate themselves. They don't just hang out with their advisors and ignore their their children. The children are uh, part of the deliberations and the family works together across these different boundaries, which makes it complicated and often makes it contentious. Um, but the family finds that, that by, uh, allowing the, um, the diversity of views and, and, um, that, that they can learn and grow together. Uh, one of the things that we saw in these families, we asked them, when you had major changes, how did they happen? And a lot of us kind of assume and have this, this mindset that says, well, the older generation, um, creates the innovation. Uh, but in these families, two thirds of them talked about how the innovation came from ideas that came from the younger generation from their travels, from their education, they brought new ideas and uh, they didn't have any formal authority. They didn't work for the business. They weren't owners. They may expect to inherit ownership, but somehow they were able to bring their new ideas into the family and create an innovation inside the traditional and uh, disciplined business of their parents. And, and this was how innovation happened. Innovation happened from below in these families. And uh, what we noticed is that this is um, very great for family businesses. There's no corresponding group in a non-family business to push for innovation, that, that you don't have the future owners um, involved in a public business the way you do in, the, in a family enterprise. So family enterprise have a, a, um, a, a an opportunity and a resource for innovation that isn't available to um, uh, public companies. Sometimes um, families create an investment group, a junior bank uh, uh, or a junior board of directors to look to innovation. You know, they, they do things in their governance to involve and, and bring in and use the energy of the younger generation. And they even invest in new ideas when they're practical and when they're uh, responsible. So this is how innovation happens in, uh, in families. Um, the families talk about what is our money for? They, uh, they don't assume that, well, we, we, we're making money in our business. We just want to make more and continue to make money. They, they begin to say, well, what is it? What does it mean to be wealthy? What do we want to do? What, what are our goals? And they talk, this is where the non-financial commitments come up. Um, the families, um, the next insight is that, that the next the families are, uh, involved in actively creating 
the next generation as a responsible group of what they call stewards. Stewards are guardians of the wealth. They're, um, they're, 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 they're part of the family. They have a role, but they're also looking to pass on to the future. And there are four things that families do to develop and use the capability of their next generation. First is they get to know each other and listen to each other. And if the next generation are going away and uh, learning all these new things, they uh, get together as a family and they listen to the ideas that are coming back. And they also train and teach the uh, younger generation uh, what they've learned uh, as the elders. They do that with transparency. They have briefings, they have dialogue, they have presentations where the younger generation learn about the business and are brought into the decisions that are being made. Other thing that they do is they see the next generation as a resource. And if it's a resource, you have to uh, attend to its development. So they invest in mentoring, they invest in executive development, they invest in education, they uh, invest in, in internships, um, all kinds of ways to make sure that the next generation becomes even more professional and more experienced than their parents and um, and finally, um, they don't just assume that the next generation, um, young people, the most talented people want to come into the family business. So they, they recruit them. They, uh, they create an opportunity. They show them why being part of the family can be more exciting and more meaningful and being part of this than, than going off on your own. And so that what they want is the most talented people not to say, hey, you guys are so conservative. You guys don't want to change. You guys never listen to us. I'm going off to this to start up my own firm and create my own wealth. And a lot of people do that. But family enterprise has a vested interest in making it attractive for those talented people to bring their ideas, to bring their investments, to bring their energy into the family. And the final insight um, uh, from my research is that, that these families, um, because they're looking two, three generations, seven generations in the future, are concerned about their social impact. And um, it takes three forms. It isn't just philanthropy. The first is the families are concerned with um, what their businesses and what their investments are doing. And so they, they talk about um, uh, social responsibility in the business. They bring their values into the business. They, um, uh, they, they want to create, um, and, and, and be responsible, um, uh, to their share, to their, not just their shareholders, but their employees, their community, uh, the families of their community. So they, they, um, look for responsibility in the business. And sometimes this means shaking up some of the, um, established policies of the business. They're active in philanthropy. The philanthropy is in the community. Family members have their own ventures, but they, they often find that doing things together is, um, is exciting. And, um, and finally, they begin to look at their investments and say, how can we invest in ways that add to wealth and bring wealth to the future, but also create a better world, better environment, so that they're looking at social investment and long-term investments that benefit everybody rather than short-term profits. And those three things are three areas where um, the family invests in the shared future. So in some ways, we look at the family as kind of creating their, the family involvement starts with yourself 
and uh, with the, with benefiting the family, but the family begins to say, you know, we have so much wealth and we have um, a, such an important role that we want to take care of our employees and our customers. And we want to reach out and make our community a beautiful and wonderful place. And we want to sustain the environment. So there's a, um, uh, over time, these families have a broader and broader circle of inclusion and, and circle of concern, um, which is a wonderful um, when we look to um, long-term future of uh, of, our, of our our planet and the world, um, these families are um, are doing this together. is is not only something that they're doing because it's good outside. This activity and this focus on values and on the future is a way of bringing the family together. So, as the what what brings people to family meetings every year? What makes people want to serve on boards? What makes people want to become involved in the family? What makes people, young people get involved is because they like um, the commitment of the family, the values of the family. It's, it's a wonderful way to work together with their cousins, to get to know their uncles and aunts and uh, grandparents, um, to do things together that this family can do that they can never do on their own, to, um, uh, you know, to, to take on wonderful projects. Um, and so the family is, in a way, they're doing philanthropy and they're making the world better, but they're doing it in a way that, that, that builds their satisfaction, their commitment, their, their inner um, a fulfillment. The next generation family members very often become involved in the family in terms of philanthropy and social impact. Um, so what I've learned um, on my journey is, is first of all, that um, even over uh, in many continents, uh, many countries all over the world, um, there are certain ways that 100-year families are doing similar things, that wh- whatever country they're in, they talk about their values, they talk about their social impact, they look ahead to the future, they develop the next generation, they diversify, they have a non-business uh, agenda. These are all things that it may be it may be different cultures in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, um, in uh, uh, in uh, um, North and South America, but the commonalities are um, are really pronounced and really clear. And all of these commonalities are are not easy. They're not easy things for the family to do. They're not quick fixes. So what these families are telling other families that are not as far along the road is is hey. You, you can reach these wonderful goals. You can do these things, but you can't outsource it and you can't just do some simple thing. Aha, set up a family council, um, uh, have a foundation. You have to really engage people over the generations and create a, a, a complex working group uh, and tribe as a family. And that's what, what we're seeing in family enterprise all over the world. But we're also seeing many different ways in which families do that. So my research is continuing and, and my work, uh, as, as the world opens up is going to continue to take me around the world. But, but I am, uh, I'm really uh, honored and delighted to be, um, you know, part of this conference and, uh, being able to share, um, my research and my ideas. Thank you so much, um, Dennis. That was really insightful. The comment boxes, um, full of positive comments, um, and questions. I'll start with question from Elmarie. Um, Elmarie, would you like to? Hi, Elmarie. Would you like to? Hi, Dennis. How are you? Great, great. Well, uh, great to uh, to work with you on this. 
Yeah, um, I must just tell the audience, I met you the first time at the FFI conference um, with the Brockhouses still in uh, 2000. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but even then, you were already so well known. So, um, And I was just making the comment, I'm extremely impressed that 20 years or 15 years later, you still look the same. And that you're still so passionate about this field. It's um, it's amazing. And we are so happy that you can still give back to this field. And it's really an honor to have you on. Um, so thank you very much, Titi, for, for organizing. So Dennis, I've asked a question. Um, Nika, if it's okay with you, if I start with that. You have such a big experience. You have been in this field from its inception, uh, you know, 30 years back. Have you um, saw noticeable changes, uh, two or three noticeable changes in your consultations with family businesses over the last three decades? So many, but but let me let me I, let me um, be responsive and, and focus. Uh, one is that the uh, the discovery that that it's not all about business, that the family business is not the family in the business, but the family is uh, has a business, but but that's not all they do. And so the focus on the family agenda and non financial capital, I think, is one. Uh, pronounced change and the understanding that a a, a family um, that's in business is not running one business forever. Um, so the idea is somehow if you have a business and it doesn't last for 200 years or a thousand years, somehow you failed, uh, that doesn't make sense. Families say, you know, we've owned this business, we've done what we can and we want to pass it on to uh, other people and, um, and, and move our involvement into different areas. So Families are becoming diversified. The focus on the family. I think um, uh, the other change that I'm seeing is that um, expert consultants used to do things for the family. Okay, we'll write a family constitution for you. We'll do this. We'll set up a family council. And now they're learning that that they you have to educate the family to do these things. And if you create um, something for the family, you also have to work with them so that they can use it. And so there's a more education and working with the family than just doing things for the family that that's evolving and I think uh, um, because of that consulting is becoming interdisciplinary um, you have psychologists you have business consultants you have uh, um, accountants you have financial advisors um, and they all have to work together um, with a family and, and you can't um, just just have one you say we have an, we have a consultant and uh, that doesn't really mean very much to a family it's what kind of a consultant what is the consultant helping you to do uh, what um, what if the family has to do several things how do you work so there there's all of these kind of new wrinkles coming up um, I think another uh, thing which which I I've I, I've talked uh, with Titi and, uh, and Nika a lot is the, the cultural differences. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we just, you know, had the presentation on uh, polygamy. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, the cultural differences around the world are, are a factor and, and these commonalities uh, come out in all the different cultures, but um, different families do things differently and have different styles, and, and the uh, advisor has to understand the culture that he or she is working in, not the culture that he came from or, or uh, you know, thinks is a good idea. That's a long answer. <laughs> That's an excellent okay, question. Thank you. Excellent answer. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Peter Matua. 
this is an amazing presentation. Have you noticed any differences between successful families from different parts of the world? Well, funny you should answer that. That's usually, Elmarie ruined a, a, a thing. That's always the first question that, that I get in, in the thing. And because of that question and because of the other work that I'm doing, um, my colleague Jim Grubman and I uh, wrote, uh, came up with a second book, um, which is called Cross Cultures. And it basically deals with exactly that question. How do different global cultures um, uh, in uh, different regions of the world, how do they um, pursue um, uh, their their family enterprise? And so the cross culture is kind of a small response to that question. And, and it suggests that there are different cultures around the world, but as families become global and family members travel and get educated in different countries and uh, understand uh, different cultural traditions, the cultural traditions are uh, are starting to meld. And uh, every uh, every every family, while the elder generation comes from a very specific culture, um, their children, um, because of their wealth, have become more global, and, and they they see culture as a choice, not as a not as destiny. And so there, the, the, we see not just cultural differences, but cultural blending and cultural conflicts. Excellent. Um, Sorry, Nikai, can I ask him a question on that? Um, okay. Have you have included certain African businesses in uh, in that book? Uh, what have you picked up on African culture? Well, actually, funny you should say, uh, Tsitsi and Jim Grubman and I have just um, completed an article about some of the, the cultural differences um, in Africa and, and, and things that are happening in Africa. And that's going to be uh, coming out um, in, a, in a journal in, um, uh, in a couple of months. And uh, those, are, those are all questions that are coming up, and it's a moving target. Um, that's what we're seeing is global alliances and COVID and things like that are changing the cultural landscape and, and and uh, people are sometimes learning involuntarily, and they're and they're learning voluntarily, and they're uh, um, influenced by each other, and, and it's, it's very, very uh, fluid, um, uh, you know, cultural influences. Excellent. Um, we have a few comments as well. Um, right. Moses Chundu says, "Passionate indeed. I could feel the energy, and I'm inspired by his work." Raymond Matura says, "Wonderful presentation. I'm very glad." And so it's his presentation. I love, I, I, I listened to that this morning. A wonderful presentation. Yeah. And Peter Mutua said, thank you so much for that response. Please share the title of the book, the cross-cultural book, I'm guessing. Cross Cultures, How Global Families Negotiate Change Across Generations. It's in, in Amazon, along with the other mm-hmm. Uh, other book, um, uh, and um, it, it it talks about the, the three cultural styles that we that that we see in the world, and how they're evolving, and how they're influencing each other, and and how they get acted out within families sometimes with different generations representing different cultural styles. Excellent, thank, thank you. And so I much. can really recommend all your books, Dennis. It's very practical. Uh, it's. Uh, I find your books and John Davis books always very practical. So uh, I really recommend it. And I also um, will go and and look for the full details of uh, at least three of your books that I would recommend and the newest ones. And then I will send it to people who have attended the conference. So um, don't worry. I'll have a look at it. Thank you. They're available on on Amazon um, in electronically you can get them instantly but a lot of people like to have them to write things in the margins and um have paper copies um 
And so I'm delighted to have people uh, read it. Excellent. Thank you so much, um, Dennis, for joining us this evening. We are so delighted and humbled that you present your leading research um, to us um, so much to learn from. And if anyone would like to get hold of you, how best can they reach you? Uh, well, I've got um, I've got an email, um, djaffe at dennisjaffe.com. And uh, I get my emails uh, many times a day and I do respond uh, to them and uh, I'm, I'm happy. And, and I have a website, dennisjaffe.com, that I offer. All, all my articles are up there and, and, and you can download them. Um, no, no fees, just... Um, I, I really believe and want um, these ideas to get out. So anything you download, you can use. And uh, I'm delighted to, to, to share it. Thank you. Um, and on behalf of African Family Firms, we want to thank our partners, Nelson Mandela University, Elmarie, Shelley. Welcome, everyone that's been part of the team. It's been right. an honor working with you and pulling off the second edition of African Family Business Research Conference. Um, it's been impeccable. Thank you. And, Thank, you. Uh, Thank you so much. To be part of Thank it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend. Take care. Thank you.